Well, let us pray before we start our class. Dear God, we praise you for your love and faithfulness. We thank you for your protection and care over our families. Thank you that you give us the power to love well, the wisdom to lead and teach our children. We know you're for us and that you fight for our families. You are our redeemer, restorer, and friend. We confess some days parenting is tough. Many days we can feel anxious or, or overwhelmed. We ask that you would make us more like you, more aware of your constant presence in our lives. Help us to release our children to you so that you are free to fully accomplish all that you desire in them and through them. Please fill our families with your truth and cover us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, and I'm going to read a few Proverbs that mine's going to... Proverbs 9, 9, instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. Proverbs 10, 17, whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Proverbs 16, 6, through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. In Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your children and they will give you peace. They will bring you the delights you desire. Good morning. There is have to imagine this right there is a video that's playing right here on the screen and it has something to do because I haven't even seen it but it has something to do with that game whack-a-mole right where the heads come up and you smack it down with a hammer world so in a sense sorry what it's the world champion the world champion whack-a-mole and part of that you know to lead in was you know in a sense was as parents sometimes every time a little problem would come up with our kids we want to whack it and solve the problem here's another one here's another problems all over the place we're whacking all over you know whacking these moles and so I was using that kind of as a lead-in to is God a fixer is God every time there's a problem that comes up that he's going to take out all the problems all the moles or whatever with this big mallet this big hammer and so um, and as we were talking the other night uh, John shared a quote with me that actually came from Stephen Ramsey who came who probably, I don't know where it originates, but it said something like this, Egypt was Pharaoh's land, the promised land was Israel's land, but the wilderness was God's land. And I wanted to share this scripture, so I was coming back and reading a little bit about the wilderness, and I really liked this scripture. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. 
So in this wilderness, you know, God was coaching the Israelites. He fed them, clothed them. The, you know, their, their shoes didn't wear out. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He made them into this nation, right? But they still walked through the wilderness. They still spent 40 years with all kinds of, uh, I'm sure, heartaches and sufferings. And, you know, I mean, it just can't be all that much fun walking through sand um, for 40 years. And I think sometimes, you know, we're talking a little bit today of, of as parents, sometimes we want to be the fixer. And, um, you know, we want to come in and save the day. And we want to make sure our kids don't suffer in any way. Hey. <laughs> They don't suffer in any way, and, and it's like, you know, it's our job. It's the only way that we can love them is by solving their problems. And, but one of the things that I've learned is that sometimes when we help, in fact, a lot of times when we help, we actually hurt. And there's a book out uh, that, I've, that I've read, and I'm going to share some reasons why it means something to me here. It's called When Helping Hurts. Uh, and this actually has to do with the life cycle of poverty in certain communities and uh, cultures. Uh, but I share this because I've been going on uh, short-term mission trips for you know, maybe 15 years now or something, uh, and 25 or 30 trips, I'm not, I've lost count. But you know, we, uh, very, at the very beginning, we used to go, we, we still go into a community called uh, Visita Guerrero in Baja California. And it is about five hours south of San Diego, and it's just a little sleepy town, a farm agricultural type town. And, you know, they're just, at that time, especially when we first visited, the homes were just, just shacks. I mean, they're just cardboard. They're just, you know, they're just not much there. One room for a family of a lot. Um, and, and so when, when we first visited, you know, our, just, you know, our hearts were just broken so much by the poverty. And you think, you know, we just got to come in and we got to fix all these things. We got to do this and this. And we got to bring all this American money in. We got to save the day. We're going to be, we didn't think this in our heads, but in a sense, we're saying we're going to be God. You know, we're going to take over and take all these problems away. And one example of that, and, you know, this sounds really good. Uh, because there was so much poverty, we, and we would notice that, well, part of the reason is that a lot of the kids could never, they could not finish their education. They were, by the time they were in sixth or seventh or eighth grade, they'd have to go out and work in the fields in order just for their families to make a living. So we thought, wow, if we could just provide some of the money so they could go to school, they could stay in school, and that would maybe help break the cycle of poverty. And boy, isn't that a loving, caring thing to do? I mean, that's a Christian thing to do. And it's, I mean, there's, what would you say would be wrong with that? I mean, that's, but, we started, so we started this education program. We started sponsoring kids and, you know, individual kids, families, and we were matching families of kids. And, that, and again, it all sounds good because this happens all the time, except for a couple things started happening. One is, is that there started becoming quarreling within the families of the church because some of them were getting money and some weren't because they had kids, they didn't have kids. And all of a sudden, money becomes this big issue rather than, you know, then come together as a family and church. But that wasn't even the, the main thing. One of the main things that we really started to notice was that the, the, the men was, were backing away from church. The men weren't, they weren't really even socializing with us as much. And we're thinking, what's happening? Well, 
when while we were hurt, while we were helping, we thought we were helping, what we were doing was hurting all these men who, who were ashamed that they couldn't provide for their kids in this way. And so we were taking away their dignity. We were, and so rather than coming in and helping and trying to help them get, you know, help them solve their own problems and lift them up, we were trying to come in and just save the day and solve the problems for them. But instead, what we were doing is taking away the dignity of, of really a lot of these people in this community. And, and this book, When Helping Hurts, says over and over and over again about these types of stories. I'm going to share one more because I think it's, it's really uh, just our American minds want to come in and save, just like I think as parents we want to come in and save the day. This, is, this actually happened in Africa, and this isn't my story, but I think it's a great one. Um, there was a place, a central, a, a well that all the ladies would come to and they would get, they would get their water you know, for the day for whatever their household needs were. And, you know, so that just was what was common, been like that for many, many years. So Americans come and they, you know, short-term mission trip, all these engineers, they come and they say, wow, we can, you know, look at this. This is a problem. They have a well and their houses are miles and miles away or who knows how, you know, how far away. But we, you know, so, you know, what do we think? Wow, we should plumb all this water to each one of the homes. Wouldn't that be a great thing? That's how we solve problems, right? We make it easier, all that sort of thing. And so they do. They come in, they take well, they build pumps, they have this copper tubing that's going all over to, you know, wherever to all these different homes. And they think, this is great, man, here we go. Um, they come back a year from now, and the system's not working. It's like, well, you know, the, some of the lines were cut, and they don't, what, they don't know what's happened. Um, and so they come back, and they fix it, and they make sure all the water's working again before they leave. And they come back the second year, and they notice that all the women are wearing copper jewelry. They all have copper all over them, right? And none of the pipes were there anymore. And, and because they just take, they melted it down, they made jewelry, all this sort of stuff, and they couldn't, why, what's happened? Why, why did this happen? Why did you not want the water? Well, they didn't realize, because nobody asked the question, was this well was the center of their social time. This is where they gathered together. This is where they talked. This is where they shared their life, their kids, their families, whatever. This is, this is part of who they were. They didn't want to have water into their homes like we would, right? So it was just like, again, it was just that sense that coming in and we want to save and we want to, without asking questions, and we want to help and we want to solve everybody's problems, and maybe we're actually hurting them, their culture, or hurting these people. And sometimes even as a parent, as what we're going to talk about sometimes today is that, you know, you can step in and rather than... And, and solve the problem in the moment. But what we've done is taken away their ability and their dignity to solve it for themselves and give them a lifelong ability and confidence in themselves to be able to solve some things. So I have one more scripture and then I'll leave and I'll be done. I'm sorry. I probably have, I don't know where my time is. Uh, this is from Romans 5, 5, 3, and 4. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So I ask this, and I kind of leave with this question. Do we rob ourselves and our children if we take away the suffering? Do we rob them of the ability to have perseverance, character, and hope? Because those things come by suffering. Monty often leads our, our youth in the missions to uh, Mexico. He was saying it's in Baja, California, but it's in Mexico. Monty has that been... 
He's been over the border so many times, he now can, I'm not joking, can cross the border simply with his Sam's card. <laughs> I'm not joking. Ask him. Uh, he'll tell you that. That's what happens when it's like a, a global entry card, really. Um, <clears throat> raise your hand if you have heard of uh, this guy, Simon Sinek, okay? M mostly kind of from a business context. Uh, Simon is kind of a futurist, <clears throat> and he talks a lot about uh, one of his famous books is kind of the power of why, getting to why, the why behind things, uh, and that marketers and business people are often confused in the, in the what and the how. But he had a, a, a talk where he talked just for a moment about millennials in the workplace. And that's a polarizing subject because, you know, some of us may be millennials and some of us may be, you know, those who work with or try to template or stereotype millennials. I want you to step past that for a moment and I want you to listen to what he says that employers are dealing with today with millennials. So just, just listen to what he says. Oh, it'd help if we had sound. So let's try to fix that. Okay. It really is great with sound. I'll tell you yeah. that. <laughs> This is a whack-a-mole exercise right here. I'm really wanting to fix this. And Usually used to putting volume through a speaker projector. Technology is failing. Yeah, today. hold on one second. See what happens if I do it this way. You might be able to hear it off my computer. Uh, I have yet to give a speech or have a meeting where somebody doesn't ask me the millennial question. Um, what's the millennial question? Apparently, millennials as a generation, which is a group of people who were born approximately uh, 1984 and after, um, uh, are tough to manage. And they're accused of being entitled and narcissistic, self-interested, unfocused, lazy. But entitled is a big one. And, uh, and because they confound leadership so much, What's happening is leaders are asking the millennials, what do you want? And the millennials are saying, we want to work in a place with purpose, love that. Um, we want to make an impact, you know, whatever that means. Um, uh, we want free food and be in bed. So somebody articulates some sort of purpose, there's lots of free food. And yet for some reason, they're still not happy. And that's because, um, they're missing, there's, there's, a, there's a missing piece. Um, what I've learned is that there, I can break it down into four pieces, right? There are four, four things, four characteristics. One is parenting, the other one is uh, technology, the third is impatience, and the fourth is environment. The generation that we call millennials, too many of them grew up um, subject to, not my words, failed parenting strategies. 
um, where, for example, they were told that they were special all the time. They were told that they could have anything they want in life, just because they want it. Right? They were told, um, uh, some of them got into um, honors classes, not because they deserved it, but because their parents complained. And some of them got A's, not because they earned them, but because the teachers didn't want to deal with the parents. Some kids got participation medals. They got a medal for coming in last, right? Which the science we know is pretty clear, which is it devalues the medal and the reward for those who actually work hard. And that actually makes the person who comes in last feel embarrassed because they know they didn't deserve it. So it actually makes them feel worse, right? So you take this group of people, and they graduate school, and they get a job, and they're thrust into, an, into the real world. And in an instant, they find out they're not special. Their moms can't get them a promotion. Um, that you get nothing for coming in last. And by the way, you can't just have it because you want it. Right? And in an instant, their entire self-image is shattered. And so you have an entire generation that's growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations. The other problem, to compound it, is we're growing up in a Facebook, Instagram world. In other words, we're good at putting filters on things. We're good at showing people that life is amazing even though I'm depressed. Right? <laughs> and so everybody sounds tough. And everybody sounds like they got it all figured out. And the reality is there's very little toughness and most people don't have it figured out. And so when the more senior people say, well, well, what should we do? They sound like, this is what you got to do. And they have no clue. <laughs> so you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations, right? Through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own. So I put that up there as a, as a point for us to discuss in terms of you know this theory that we presented before that it's so easy to fixate on the fact that we're raising a 12-year-old or a 5-year-old or a 16-year-old when Simon Sinek is reminding us we're raising an adult. And in this case, he's reminding us that we're raising an adult that, uh, you know, someday an employer is going to have to deal with. But he does point out what he calls, and he was very careful about this, not his title, but someone else's, failed parenting strategies. So what do you think about that? What are your observations about his theory of society and parenting? What are your observations about that? I would agree. I mean, if you think back, it makes sense. Helicopter parenting, um, car seats, helmets, knee pads, all of those items. Mix that with uh, instant information, technology revolution. Uh, mix that with the political emphasis we're seeing. No trust whatsoever in all the different leaders we've had over the past 20 years. Mix that with having two major market crashes. So the economy, our leaders, um, in, in reality, uh, it's a pretty tough environment for anybody to come out of and consider uh, where did they actually belong. Mm. Good. Other comments, very well said. Other comments. Do you feel that way sometimes? Do you feel like you have reinforced to your child that they are special and that they can have anything just because they want it and that, you know, hey, they play on a team and they get a participation medal or trophy? Do you feel that way sometimes? Well, yes. I see, I see a lot of, or hear a lot of, well, obviously, not my child, mm. and be fighting their battles, like going to the teacher and saying, well, obviously the teacher's wrong, mm. not my child. Mm. And um, 
if there is an issue, not having the child address the teacher, the parent doing it for them and be believing the child over the teacher or just paving the path instead of mm -hmm. I just see a lot of that, mm -hmm. and not not giving the child the skills that they're going to need as an adult in the workforce, but instead making it where they don't have to have those skills mm -hmm. in childhood, and then at some point they're going to be on their own, and they're not going to have what they need. Good. Other comments? Yes? I think it's important to um, let our kids see how we fail. And the reason I think that is because I think in 20 years we're like, oh, remember we worried about millennials, you know, we have these, you know, whatever the next thing is. <laughs> um, I try to put myself in the position of my mom. She's single, she has zero financial peace. <laughs> and I try to tell myself, give her grace because her parents didn't know how to teach her about credit cards and debt. And that was, that was their issue. And she, now I'm learning because she made those get out but it's kind of the same thing there's always going to be something that we have to learn that's new in the next generation how to fix mm -hmm. and, and I'm glad that I didn't know her situation until my parents were divorced and I was an adult and could step in and help I didn't know any of that I didn't know mm -hmm. she had debt I didn't know any of that so I kind of wish I would have known earlier but we we do things differently we're not in debt we you know have that because we don't see our parents so well yeah, I think that sense of transparency and vulnerability is really important to share with your kids kind of the stresses of the day, uh, the, the losses of the day, uh, and to just pause in a moment to reflect on those and reinforce, you know, our dependency on God and, and how God is going to use this. Um, I think that's really important. We're going to talk more about markers. We, we talked a little bit about that as we were preparing for this class, but that certainly um, supports that. Somebody else had a question or a comment? Yeah. Well, just, I, I like what he said. He, he didn't just say millennials are entitled, but right. like he talked about the environment they were raised in right. that might have led to, to yeah. these attitudes and responses that they have. And, but that makes you wonder, like, what happened to the baby boomers that they did that to? Yeah. So, so this is so interesting, and, and again, yeah, yeah, right. And, and, and remember, uh, uh, I'm trying to focus on kind of the lessons as it relates to parenting, and you know, not a discussion of the generations. But what's interesting is, um, I know this is the case for our children. Um, they're the star of their own documentary. From the moment they were born, technology has allowed us to have a camera on them, right? So they're, they're as famous as the Kardashians in their mind, right? Because the camera has been on them the whole time. And it, again, uh, part of what we're trying to walk gingerly over is the fact that, you know, you come in here, if, if you're like me, and you're like, okay, give me something, guys, that I can use to fix my children. And what we're trying to point out is there's, there's a wilderness experience here for us as parents, too. And that is parenting is a wilderness. It is. It's a wilderness. And if we'll approach God on our knees, the wilderness is where he shows up. And then similarly, if we can encourage our children to struggle, 
uh, that, that's critical. Uh, so I put this up here just to remind us that I think some of us, I know we do, are trying to take this role of being a caretaker, protector, provider, and we're trying to pull it as far this way as we possibly can. I don't know if you ever feel that way, but the suggestion there is that the cop, you know, change things. You know, the cop doesn't come in and correct things. The cop reminds the child of boundaries, which are critically important, which we've not always done a great job of. The cop reminds the child of rules and infractions, but the cop doesn't do the work for the citizen. The cop leaves the behavior to the citizen, and then similarly, the coach. <clears throat> the coach doesn't come on the field. They'll get a technical. They don't come on the court. They're trusting the children to play it out and make their own decisions. Um, uh, you, you know, there, there are all kinds of stories about, somebody said it earlier, about helicopter moms, and, mm -hmm. and they're really helicopter dads as well. Um, but, but I have a, a friend who uh, interviewed someone, a young person, for a job, uh, decided that wasn't the right fit, and indicated to the person, you know, not, not a good fit. The mom called the employer. So, uh, you know, I, I think part of what we're just trying to encourage you to do is, you know, let's all kind of commit to an oath that will not, will not intervene and, excuse me, try to take this role throughout their older generations. Catherine, yes. I, I was just going to say, on. No, um, we love your comments. Okay, all right. Well, I think there's great insight in reflecting back on your parents and the generation before because most often our behaviors are a reflection of what we want to avoid, what we viewed as pain, or what we viewed as something that was unfair or unjust. So coming back to the question, you look at the great generation of the 30s and 40s, they had nothing. Went through depression, didn't have any food, one pair of jeans, no shoes. Then you have the baby boomers who come through and say, I don't want to ever be in a position that my parents were, so they work and work and work until they die to have everything, but die with essentially no relationship. And then you have Generation Y, millennials come out of that and say, look, I don't want to work my life away. I've seen my parents do this. I'm done with it. But I still want to have everything. And now you have the new generation, you know, Z or whatever they want to call them, that you said it's all immediate. My life is online. I don't know what relationships are. And so moving into that, it's a reflection of the past. And where we go from there, I don't know. But the, the point of the, the comment is to look back you said that beautifully because I was gonna say something very similar but you said it much better so I think it means we all need to be in counseling for what our parents did to us right <laughs> yeah. um, well I just want to kind of lead us in to try to have some takeaways maybe some things we can do because I think we'll all agree that our goal should be to have resilient kids right we don't need to be those fixers so just to kind of recap I, you can get online and read articles and blogs, things that talk about what teachers say about our kids right now. And some of you may be teachers and you may agree with this, that students are being raised with a whole new level of overprotectedness. Okay. Helmet, knee pads, goes beyond that. They are also in a state of helplessness, powerlessness, 
and they're destined to be anxious. We are seeing huge increases in the amount of teens that are suffering from anxiety and depression. Why? Okay, what is different? I think it's because they feel powerless. They don't know how to deal with problems. Okay. So, um, you know, we have parents who rush to the school with the homework that the child left at home because they called and said, I forgot my homework at home. So we rush it up to school instead of letting them suffer the consequence of not turning it in, getting a zero or a late grade by turning it in the next day. And they will never learn to take it to school if we keep taking it for them. And we go and talk to the teacher and say it wasn't their fault. You know, they had a really late night. They had a travel soccer game or just whatever. We have excuses for our kids instead of letting them suffer a consequence. And um, we've already mentioned the word helicopter parents. You know, my kids see helicopter parents. Our youngest son um, does robotic. He competes with the robotics team. And he watched a parent last year. Part of the process is to um, fill out an engineering notebook every single day, chronicling what you've done, your mistakes, what you've learned, everything. He watched a parent do it for another child. And then he went to competitions and watched that child win because of the parent's work. It was extremely frustrating. At the end of the season, though, he saw the child be disqualified because one judge finally realized this wasn't a middle schooler's work. But it was a great lesson. I, you know, it was all I could do to not go to that coach and go, do you not realize this isn't fair? We gotta step back. It's not my problem to solve. Not my problem to solve. So um, even further, not just elementary, middle school, and high school teachers talking about our kids, college teachers. There was an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education with a quote from um, the uh, president of the Association of University and College Counseling Directors. Students haven't developed skills in how to soothe themselves because parents have solved all their problems and removed all the obstacles. They don't seem to have as much grit as previous generations. So Carol Dweck um, has a best-selling book that probably a lot of you have heard of. You may have seen some of her TED Talks called Mindset. And she talks about this turn in her career when she uh, started doing some research on children um, because there was a school in Chicago that instead of giving a failing grade for a child's work that was uh, a zero or not, not great, maybe just needed work, instead of the failing grade, they would say, not yet. And what did that do to the kids? She was very interested to look. Um, so this gave her um, an idea for research, and so she studied children, uh, if you'll go to the next slide, John, that either to see if a child had growth mindset or a fixed mindset, okay? If a child had a fixed mindset, they thought everything was due to an outcome. Did I get an A on this? What is the outcome, okay? So this picture on the left is the fixed mindset, and those little dots are supposed to be your electrons in your brain. And there's just not a lot of activity happening. It's kind of stagnant. They weren't critically thinking. They were just looking for a certain answer. Okay? On the right is the growth mindset. 
Um, these students, um, when they were given a problem that was a little too hard for them, they were like, um, I love this challenge. I don't know the answer, but I, I like doing that. And their electrons are charging and they're firing and they're going back and forth. And so you see that red fiery atmosphere. They're learning new patterns and growing. They may not have come up with the right answer, but their brain is changing. On the left, these kids um, had the fixed mindset. They, they felt like they would fail if they didn't know the answer, so they didn't even want to try. And so instead of what she calls luxuriating in the power of yet, they were gripped in the tyranny of now. So she studied these kids, the ones who didn't want, didn't want to step out and take a chance or a risk. And, and she found out that the next time they were given a problem a little bit too hard, they were more likely to cheat. They were more likely to lie. They were more likely to look for somebody who did worse than them and kind of put them down to make themselves feel better. Okay. So how are we raising our children? Are we raising them for now or for yet? And, um, you know, if our um, biggest goal is helping them get an A, I think we're going to be setting them up for failure. So what can we do? How can we build the bridge to yet? I'm going to give you four practical um, ideas. First, Carol Dweck says praise the process. If we only praise the successful outcome, our children will think they failed when they aren't perfect. That's when that anxiety can set in. We want to praise their effort, their strategies, their focus, their perseverance, and their improvement. This will change their mindset. This will fire those neurons in their brain and help them make new connections. And then the second thing, you can encourage problem solving. If I do things for my children, they won't build problem-solving skills. And um, there's a, a blog writer, Tim Elmore, that John gets an email from every day. And he says, although employers value problem-solving skills most, somehow graduates come to the job afraid to even try. I believe it's because most of their lives up to this point have been virtual. I think this is very important. Um, what's more, too many moms or dads have done the problem solving for them. I want to talk about the virtual world in a minute, but let's think about everything. We don't have that face-to-face. -face. Everything's virtual, games, media. Let them, let them um, solve their problems. We talked about reflective listening last week. Ask questions, don't fix. Let them problem solve. Okay, the third thing is allow failure. If you don't let them fail, they're not going to develop resilience. Um, most kids will crumble at this first sign of adversity because they haven't faced it yet. We must let them fail when they're at home with us in our safe environment where we can love them even through failure. We can be there to help them pick the pieces up, realize, teach them that God is there even through deep waters. Tell them, I loved your point about telling them your own failures. This reminds, to say, this reminds me when I did this and had this mistake, and you know what, I learned from it, and this happened. God saw me through that. 
let them fail. And then the fourth thing, back to the virtual, insist on soft skills. If I don't balance, help my child balance their screen time, they're not going to develop soft skills. Um, we need to help them learn to have the ability to work with others, to learn to communicate face-to-face, -face, not just through a text message. I mean, think about John, John's employees would rather instant message each other at the desk next to them than talk to them face-to-face. -face. We've got to teach them to do that. They don't know how to, to dial a number on the phone and drag it all the way from the kitchen into the dining room over here so that your mom can't hear what you're saying because they have their own phones. We've got to teach them to communicate. Um, so I want to give you just a few examples of times where I feel like we've let our kids fail or develop resiliency just to spark some thoughts. Our oldest, when he was about four, we went to the family YMCA on Concord Road, and he and, his, and Ben went to the little play area where I, went, where I worked out. And as we were walking back outside to leave, and it was cold, it was winter, I realized that Will had left his coat in the room. Will didn't like to talk to adults at that time. His younger brother talked for him. They would play trains. His younger brother would say, Will, you say this, and I'll say this. Will, you say this, and he would do it. And I would be like, Will, say whatever you want. He didn't like to. He was shy. Didn't like to. For some reason that day, I decided he's going to ask the adult for the coat. I'm not going to go in there and do it for him. He's got to learn to do this. An hour and a half later, we left the YMCA with his coat, and he was probably scarred for life. But I will, and of course, his two-year-old brother's like, Mom, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I'm like, no. It made me think when John came home from work, Will now works for John. He said, I said, tell me about work today. He said, well, Will actually had a 15-minute presentation he had to do to the executive team. And he ended up being in there for 30 minutes. It went so well. I was really proud of him. And I thought back to that time as a four-year-old. Man, if I hadn't drawn that line. I mean, I don't know. That may not have been the deciding moment. But at some point when you can say, I'm going to put my foot down. We, this is important. Do it. Um, we've let Jake lose a job. He had a great job at Climb Nashville. Lance Brock gave him a great job. And he's not a very organized person. He has ADHD. His executive functioning skills are not strong. So for the first two months, I helped him get his schedule, put it on his calendar. I helped him set reminders. Then I reminded him, kept reminding him. And then after two months, I said, it's up to you. He missed three times in a row because he didn't do it, and he got fired. Now, I could have gone to Lance and said, please give him another chance. And Lance probably would have. I don't know. Maybe not. I didn't. Let him fail. Better that he failed as a 17-year-old than he's 28 and the family is, is you know, needing him to have that job. Um, we've had a kid in in-school suspension. And really, we feel like we could have gone and said, you know what, that other party, there, there was something else that was going on, and somebody else should also. We didn't. Just let him have a consequence. Um, Hank, homecoming. Remember I told you this story last week? If you weren't here, 
Hank told me there was a lot of drama at school one day after the homecoming group had been formed and that other kids had invited themselves and there was just so much drama and they didn't know what was going to happen and oh, it was driving him crazy, all these group texts and stuff. So I reflectively listened, reflectively listened and, you know, didn't start trying to solve his problem. And literally we left class and within four hours one of the other moms said, okay, I've talked to all the other moms and we've worked out what they're going to do, and where they're going to have pictures, and we've come to an agreement. And I was like, for real? Well, it didn't fix everything. The kids just got mad at the moms. And it's still, I mean, we're, we're six days away from homecoming, and there's not, there's no resolution yet. But um, I just don't respond in the group texts that I've been put in by the moms. So um, let them figure things out. Let them learn problem-solving skills. So I'll just conclude by saying um, we're not looking for thank you cards from our kids, okay? Sometimes, at some point, you may look back and say, this setback you went through at this time was the best thing that ever happened to you. Okay. If your child gets suspended because of a small drug use infraction as a freshman, wouldn't you rather that happen and then have a consequence than end up not having the consequence, end up with an addiction? We want our kids to mess up when it's safe. We are, we're at the conclusion of our time. I just would end with this thought, you know, again, to take away. Is it's about the process, not the outcomes. It's so interesting how some of these themes have been converging. Uh, last night, the... Um, uh, Stanford UCLA game was on, I think it was, right? The high scoring game, late game on ESPN. And as what they call B-roll on the intros and outros of the, of the um, program, they showed some photos of, of our completed pro pro uh, project there. And I just was going to show you because I can't believe kind of how the worlds converge. So this is a, this is a, uh, Hall of Fame that we did for them. That's kind of what our work is, is that we decorate and design and do Halls of Fame for folks. And um, what was so interesting is that these two sidewalls here and here, in our original design for Stanford, Stanford has won more Director's Cups, 23. That means they're the winningest athletic program in the universe, okay? What's so interesting about that though is that to get into Stanford and be on our, their athletic team you have to be accepted in the university first so you have to be an incredible scholar first and then the coach will talk to you it's very interesting in our original design we had trophies here and here on these two big white art pieces and as we got into the project Stanford just kept saying to us that's wrong that's not that's not who we are and the thesis of this project to reflect all of Stanford's athletic greatness. The theme was, it's about the process, not the outcomes. Trophies will come, accomplishment will come if you focus on the process, not the outcomes. We were blown away that they would be so obsessed with the process, not the outcomes. We're talking about Tara Vanderveer, one of the winningest coaches in all uh, time history, next to Pat Summit, about the process, not the outcomes. Now worry about the trophies. If you'll listen during NCAA football, those post-game interviews, you'll hear a lot about process, not outcomes. And so maybe as you take away, 
Think about the process, not outcomes. Think about letting your child suffer and struggle in the wilderness. And think about your own struggles in the wilderness. And just hope and pray that's where we meet God through that process. Thanks for coming.